Welcome to the CT Startup Podcast, an insider's perspective on the startup ecosystem in the great state of Connecticut. My name is Dave Menard from Martha Kleiner, and with me today are Eric Francis, Trifecta Ecosystems, Chris DeMauro with Sublime Exposure, and our special guest today is Mike Harrington, uh, head of the Labor and Employment Department at uh, Martha Kleiner, and here today to talk about the issue of difficult employees, how to discipline employees, and what the termination process looks like. So we're doing something special today. We're here at the uh, Community Economic Development Fund um, and the CEDF in Meriden, Connecticut. And we actually have a live audience of entrepreneurs and business leaders and start people who have started their own business, received funding through the CEDF, um, and, uh, and had this question. They specifically asked for this question, and so we're going to record it here. And we're going to make this recording not only available at uh, the CT Startup website, but also uh, the CDF will have it as well. So hopefully we can do more of these educational seminars uh, in the future in addition to our normal interviews with uh, startup companies and resources in the startup ecosystem. So we're pretty excited about this. Uh, Mike, I think we're going to have you take it away. Why don't you, what's the, what's the first thing you do when a client tells you they have a difficult employee? Just uh, fire them, right? <laughs> <laughs> right okay. Sometimes, sometimes <laughs> that is the answer. Um, but sometimes there's a lot more uh, investment into an employee that you don't want to pull the trigger right away. Uh, I have a, a situation right now that uh, a certain problem has pervaded the, pro the business, and depending on how they approach it, they could lose a good percentage of their, their employees. So sometimes you want to come up with strategies other than uh, terminating. Um, but most businesses have employees, right? And so uh, not every ones. business. Uh, <laughs> and so there's different statutes that get triggered depending on the size of your business. Uh, but here in Connecticut, uh, our Connecticut Fair Employment Practices Act gets triggered when the business has only three employees. So it doesn't have to be a very big business. And that is our standard anti-discrimination statute, which is normally in the back of your head when you know, you have an employee and you want to discharge them, you know, uh, most employers hold themselves out to be at-will employers, which in theory, it's a very nice theory. But in reality, uh, there are a lot of avenues, a lot of forums that individuals can go to challenge their uh, termination. And, you know, it used to be just a union employer would have to deal with the just cause standard or having a rationale um, for terminating someone. But the reality is there are many statutes um, that limit an, an employer's ability to terminate, um, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means you need to do it thoughtfully. Can you just talk about the at will? Sure. Because that, that seems a I don't understand that. So the concept is you are employed at the will of the employer, meaning you can leave at any time you wish to do so. You, you're not under an employment contract for a certain duration, but the employer could ask you to leave at any point for any reason. So that's at will. Okay. Uh, you sneezed at the wrong time and <laughs> you're done. Certainly. Okay. You know, and, and you know, it could be, you know, you just, the employer decides, I want to go in a different direction. You don't have a skill set. You know, that's where at will gives you certain freedom versus in contrast, uh, most employers who have unions representing a segment of their workforce have to meet a just cause standard, meaning you cannot let someone go unless it's just cause. 
I had a call before uh, I came down here today. An employee had uh, gotten on social media and had made some very racially inappropriate comments. Um, it, the employer happens to be a union employer, so they have to meet the just cause standard. It wasn't the U.S. government, was it? It was not. No, okay, <laughs> just check off. <laughs> it was not. Um, but that, you know, we struggled with whether an arbitrator would uphold the decision. Um, I think any person who heard or read the email that this individual sent out would agree it was completely inappropriate. But in a union context, you do have this higher standard you have to meet. And this individual had been employed for 10 years, hadn't had a disciplinary problem in the past, and we had a conversation about whether an arbitrator would find that we had met the standard. At will, as long as you have a lawful reason uh, for terminating someone, you can be successful in separating that employment agreement uh, or employment arrangement. But the problem becomes is, you know, how do you prove it, you know? And so if someone goes down to the Connecticut Commission on the Human Rights and Opportunities, which is our state agency charged with enforcing the Connecticut Fair Employment Practices Act, or the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EOC, which has concurrent jurisdiction on the federal side, you have to prove your case. So that's where the thoughtfulness needs to come in for employers, that if you simply wake up and pull a trigger without any documentation, that decision is going to be suspect and certainly subject to challenge. Um, as an employment lawyer, one of my goals is to hopefully get employers in a position where they can quickly get a case dismissed. And the way you can quickly get a case dismissed is having documentation. So you're not legally obligated to do it, but in the long term, it'll serve you well uh, if you have to go down to one of those agencies and prove your case. And How we'll often get do that. people appeal their, their firing? Pretty often, <laughs> yeah, you know. pretty often. I mean, if someone falls into one of the protected classes under law, which you know, I think everybody around this table would fall into one class or another, um, you know, sex, sexual orientation, religion, color, marital status is protected under Connecticut. They're law. going after a lot of single people. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't have families to go home to. Yeah. They don't have dependents that are going to go on your health insurance. Interestingly, there is very little case law. Uh, claiming marital discrimination, which may be a good thing here in the <laughs> state, but it is there uh, for protection. And what do employees hope to get out of it? So once you've been fired, it seems difficult to me that you'd actually want your job back because you'd be walking back into an awful situation. Then you just have an employer who wants to document you, right? Right. Well, you know, desperate people um, are willing to undergo that. I mm -hmm. mean, someone who's having a real uh, struggle finding employment um, someone with limited skill sets that may not be able to find alternative employment may well want their job back. Okay. I've had situations where employees have been discharged after a very long term of, of service. And despite the acrimony that may be associated with the decision to terminate, they still would like to work at that workplace. Hmm. Uh, maybe be reassigned to a different supervisor, uh, but nevertheless would like to return. But to answer your question, Dave, <laughs> most people are looking for money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no it's way. usually about money. <clears throat> no way, that doesn't sound right. I know, so, I know. So I guess one of the things <clears throat> is that there's, kind of bringing up the example that you said before, is that there was an email. You mentioned social media, but an email to me maybe sounds like it's sent to people who work in the company, not an email that was sent to regular people that aren't in the company. So I guess the difference, like, personal life versus mm -hmm. a business life when does that start kind of um, like do you, do you have grounds again 
people start going off the rail on, on Twitter and this and that. I mean, is, is, is that legitimate grounds for So actually, the, the uh, situation I was called about today was a Facebook posting. Okay. Uh, and the uh, person had uh, just a public setting. And so this comment that uh, he posted was subject to review. And uh, I'm not sure who forwarded on to the employer, but the message that came along with it was, do you realize what your employees are saying and would you like your customers to know mm -hmm. what your employees are saying? In a union environment, when you have what's called off-duty misconduct, there needs to be a nexus about how does that off-duty misconduct relate to the person's job in order to make out a just cause standard, which is mm -hmm. why we are having the conversation. But an at-will employer, if someone does do something, um, maybe has a DUI, maybe gets arrested for an assault, doesn't have any relationship to the job, but you just don't want to run the risk of having some negative publicity, um, that certainly would be a lawful reason to terminate employment uh, in an at-will situation. Okay, so when we see, when we see uh, these people that just, you know, they have 10 Twitter followers, they put up this random thing, it gets retweeted, and then all of a sudden they have 100,000 Twitter followers, and then, you know, 20 minutes later they're, they're fired from their job you know, kind of a thing. So that, I mean, that's legitimate that, you know, that but, can happen. And so one, uh, your question brings up a really interesting <clears throat> area of the law right now, the National Labor Relations Act, which most people think of just applying to employers with unions actually applies to all employers of any size of any employer who engages in interstate commerce. This is the law <laughs> that uh, governs how employees can select unions to be represented, but it also has protection for an employee who engages in uh, concerted activity, that's the phrase the statute uses, for mutual aid and protection. So if someone's on social media or Twitter and is griping about how they are treated by their employer, um, that is actually protected activity. We had one of the first cases brought by the National Labor Relations Board challenging an employment decision of a non-unionized employer, it was an ambulance company here in Connecticut, and the employer actually lost uh, because people do have the right under that statute to express their thoughts about their employment. See, everybody's got a soapbox these days, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. got access to a larger community. You no longer just have employees in their own. You know, any idiot can get a microphone and a computer and, and start, start a, a podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> or three <laughs> idiots in particular can do it. Uh, it's a, it, it's tremendous. It's a, but it's an amazing, you know, it's an amazing thing because you see it all the time, especially with large publicly held companies. Right. Well, I don't think people's behavior <coughs> has changed. I think people have always griped about their work <coughs> or their supervisor, mm -hmm. um, but it was done on a very informal setting, either over a cup of coffee at the water cooler. It probably didn't go beyond the people who were directly involved in that conversation. Now you can have a conversation with a massive audience. And this individual today was speaking to an unlimited audience because mm -hmm. it was a public uh, forum, mm -hmm. uh, public page. So it does create a lot of consternation for employers, but employers have to realize that um, unless it's affecting their business, meaning the employee is disclosing trade secrets or is engaging in online harassment uh, towards other employees, uh, pro the employee is probably going to be protected in that speech and to take an adverse action to terminate someone because of it, it's probably only gonna compound the problem. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me like, okay, so 
back in the day, you said, you know, uh, people haven't really changed. Well, it was hard to, to prove telephone, right? Mm -hmm. You, I hear it from you and then I tell another person and so forth, right? It was really hard to prove that it's hearsay. Yeah. Now in this time when you, you typed it, it's somebody screenshot it, even if you delete it and boom, it, it, it's, it's, um, you know, documented. So the question is, you talked about documentation before. Does that documentation mean, you know, I write it down on a piece of paper saying, okay, on February 25th, he did X, Y, and Z, and I got it, right? Or does that mean I have to have the employee handbook that it expressively stated it before, and then that, you know, you get what I'm saying? So it's like, what documentation are you actually talking about? So documentation can take all sorts of forms. It can take the form of an email. Um, it can take the form of a more formalized document, a counseling that's written up, a verbal warning or a written warning. Um, interestingly, since 2013 in the state of Connecticut, again, this applies for all employers of any size, uh, they're subject to the personnel file statute. And that says that if you are going to create a document uh, being critical of someone's performance, you need to give them a copy of it. There's some lessons that I think union uh, employers have learned that non-union employers could learn. Uh, usually under a collective bargaining agreement, there's a directive that any written um, discipline has to be given to the union and to the employee. And some private employers didn't pick up on that. And so what they have is this great set of documentation, but the employee now has plausible deniability because they never got a copy of it. I mean, if an employer is going to take the step of creating the document, you really want to give it to the employee. And now by statute, you have to. Now, the statute doesn't mandate that you have to write something up. It simply says that if you are going to write something up, you have to give it to your employee. And I think at the end of the day, you know, and I can think of countless situations where this has been beneficial either at unemployment, uh, where, you know, one of the standards is did the employee engage in willful misconduct for purposes of being uh, uneligible or ineligible for unemployment compensation? Well, part of that concept is, did the employee know better? If you can point to a document that put the employee on notice, your case is sort of halfway there. Uh, similarly, when you finally pull the trigger and say it's unacceptable for being late to work or spending too much time on the computer and you've written this up, you've put the person on notice, if you are down at the CHRO, you can prove, well, this had nothing to do with the person's gender or color of their skin. They were put on notice just like other people of different characteristics, different genders, different colors of skin. This is an issue throughout the organization. So that documentation helps prove your case in, in many, many ways. But it takes time and energy, mm -hmm. and you want to do it well. I mean, having a bad document, one that's poorly written, inaccurate, is probably worse than having no document whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to have a document, you want to make sure that it is one that you want people to see um, and uh, you know you think about that as you create the document. Mm -hmm. Is there ever a defense for an employee if, if <coughs> you cite an employee for spending too much time on the internet, right? And turns out that all the other employees are spending just as much time on the internet, but you've singled out this one person. Mm -hmm. Is that a defense an employee can use? Oh, absolutely. So that's disparate treatment. You're treating people differently. So simply because, you know, I give this example uh, only because it came up in a case where you would think innately sleeping on the job is just an absolutely terminable offense. No, not at all. No, 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 no come on. <laughs> well, you know, third shift, second shift, maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
if you only hold one person accountable. <laughs> if only one person gets Yeah, and, and it's typically the person who falls into some category that's easily identifiable. You know, the only minority employee or the only female employee on the shift or whatever, um, your case gets completely undermined. So you want to be consistent. Um, you know, I sort of look at, we're talking about terminating the employment relationship. Most of my time is spent helping people hopefully preserve the employment relationship because again, you, you took a lot of time to recruit someone. I've heard from employers, there's still difficulty finding good people. Um, so if, if there's an issue that can be addressed uh, and an employment relationship can be salvaged, generally that's better for the employer. And so what you want through consistency is sort of an expectation set in the workplace. This is what we expect all employees to do, and if you don't, uh, if you deviate from that, you're going to be written up, um, you're going to be warned, and hopefully, what you're going to get is reformation. You know, you're going to get compliance, um, and then you won't have to separate. So, so really, kind of what you you actually kind of talk about or what your role is you're talking about like company culture right it, it's because it, what's the company culture do we have is it lackadaisy where you know right. things happen or is it strict by the book you ever you have to do x y and z so for me i always kind of look at and, and this comes from trying to create our company you're going to be hiring people and i'm going to ask you a question on the other side of owners that are also employees mm -hmm. um and so it, it seems like the culture is the big thing. Um, and by setting the culture, setting the expectations of a company, because I, I follow some larger um, kind of companies across the country that have really good leadership. And, and it's almost, if it's not your fit, leave. Like we want, like they're almost trying to push people, like creating a scenario where if you don't fit in, you're going to inherently leave and you're not going to cause the problems that may, that may, may arise. So. It, it, do you talk to your clients about that? Do you talk to businesses about how to establish that culture and then and then follow through on it, obviously? So culture comes up in a lot of different ways. One, it could be a recruitment tool. Uh, you know, you create an, uh, a workplace with a certain culture, uh, and culture could be, you know, how do you recognize people? How do you involve people? I mean, there's a lot that can go mm -hmm. into that. One thing, I'm glad you mentioned it because um, it's come up a couple times that I've worked with startup companies. Mm -hmm who have this aspiration for developing a culture that's very inclusive, maybe less formal. Mm -hmm. and Free drinks and <laughs> stuff like that and all that, all that good stuff, right? Yeah, yeah not too far <laughs> yeah, from that. Yeah. Um, but the problem is there are certain standards. Uh, case in point, um, I had a client, um, I think maybe of Dave's, uh, that uh, <laughs> <No> <laughs> had a very informal culture. Yeah. And so you sort of showed up for work when the spirit moved you, and you could work at all different times. And <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound so like that, my clients at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Never. And that was really good, except for they did not keep accurate time records. So you have to keep accurate time records. And so that's just a requirement. So you can't have a culture that doesn't um, – sort of uh, meet that requirement. Mm -hmm. Same thing with we have uh, laws that uh, prohibit discrimination and harassment based on certain protected classifications. So you couldn't have or it would not be wise to have a culture where profanity is largely tolerated and not addressed. Um, and that's not to say, I know, that, it's, that, it's that, That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one. <laughs> because what you don't want to say is, oh, you know, employee, you feel uncomfortable with us using certain terms. We call each other bitches all the time. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> if you don't like it, you can leave. 
I think um, I think there's a couple agencies that would quickly come yeah. to mind that would have a problem okay. with that. So you can't have a culture that has in it a harassment sort of component. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all I've all I could share with you is I've had some employers say, "Oh, that's just our way." Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think these. CHRO, the EOC, they have a different expectation. So, but again, I don't think it means you have to be, you know, some white shoe kind of firm. You can mm-hmm. still have a casualness about it, but you do have to have certain standards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those standards will actually uh, help you in the long run in terms of maintaining employee morale and employees knowing what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mike, you talk a little bit about employee handbooks. Mm-hmm. Are, are they necessary? Uh, are they provide benefits? Are there dangers to having one? Yes. Um, so, like most things in life, there's pros and cons. So, uh, a handbook is only as good as it being followed. So, I have a lot of clients that have handbooks that haven't come off the shelf in a very long time. <laughs> and their insurance company told them they should <laughs> probably have one or something like that, maybe, right? Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> smaller organizations probably don't need too big of a handbook. I mean, you do want to have certain policies. Um, for example, if you are going to plan to monitor your employees electronically, as every employer should, you know, if someone's using your business equipment, you should make sure your employees always know that you as the employer may jump on the system at any point in time because you're going to be liable mm-hmm. for their actions. So you want to make sure you have the, the freedom uh, to do that electronic monitoring. So you would need a policy for that. You should definitely have an anti-harassment policy, which outlines where employees go if they have concerns. Um, So you could have a collection of policies, and there's probably five to 10 policies that I think are sort of core. Mm -hmm. Then as the organization gets bigger, you may or may not have a formal handbook. Um, So at a minimum, there are some basic policies that every employer should probably have in their mind. You know, how to pu- how to keep track of your time, you know, make sure you don't harass um, what leave, you know, what are the work hours expected? And, you know, is there any, you know, systems in place if you are going to be absent, you know, those sorts of things. Do you have to answer my email on the weekend, basically? Uh, well, you know, if you're as long as you're going to pay them. <laughs> So, so that's interesting. You talk about like the hours and, and tracking the time, like salary versus by the hour. I yeah. mean, if so that's an, and especially in startups, right? So you're kind of. So I'm glad you said that um, because the the contrast or the use of the term salary versus hourly is not really accurate and it gets people into trouble. The, 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 the terms you want to have in your mind are exempt, meaning exempt from overtime uh, and minimum wage or non-exempt. And the reason it's important is whether you pay someone salary or hourly is only one part of making someone exempt or not. If to be exempt, you have to pay someone a salary, and there was a lot of discussion last year that uh, under the Obama administration, there was going to be an elevation of the salary that was necessary to be paid to get, uh, to be exempt under the white collar exemptions, either as an executive, administrative, or professional. Um, Those were enjoined by a district court, never put into place really on the eve of them going into effect and I suspect they haven't yet been pulled back from the Trump administration but I think it's pretty assumed that they are going to get pulled back but you have to pay a salary a certain level right now it's about 24,000 a little less than 24,000 a year so if you paid someone a salary 
of 20000 they are not exempt, meaning if they work more than 40 hours in a week, you would have to pay them overtime. But the salary <coughs> is only one part of it. You also have to make sure the person's doing a job that qualifies as being exempt. So no matter how you pay a cashier at a retail outlet, you could pay them you know, $50,000. They are not going to be exempt. Um, they are entitled to overtime over 40 because they just don't meet the duties mm -hmm. part of the test. I don't want to get too far away from uh, you know, sort of employees that are, that are troublesome, but um, I, I did want to have you talk about one thing that I think happens to a lot of small companies is they use volunteers or interns. Mm. And uh, I think a lot of them are surprised when they find out that, you know, unless the intern is receiving some form of compensation, like mm -hmm. say class credit, that they need to pay these people. So Absolutely. maybe you could talk for. Sure. <coughs> so, you know, and the other thing that smaller businesses tend to uh, try to do is use independent contractors yes. uh, as opposed to employees. We love independent contractors. I know you we do. Love I know. I, I always feel like I'm the joy kill when, uh, you know, Dave says, oh, call a client and I have to deliver the, uh, the bad message. Better, uh, better you than me, yeah. which is why. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had to do that today uh, for another one of our partners, uh, you know, whose wife has Alzheimer's and they want to hire an in-home care person. That's an employee, unless they're going to hire an agency. When you bring someone in and you're going to direct their activities, the presumption is they're employees. They can be independent contractors if you meet a three-part test. Now, to Dave's question about volunteers or interns, <coughs> volunteers can really only be used if you're a not-for-profit company or the government. <laughs> um, you really can't use volunteers. Interns... Uh, the, under the Obama administration, they came out with very specific guidance. And basically, the general rule of thumb is you can't have an intern be unpaid and replace an activity that you would otherwise use an employee for. Basically, if you want to have that unpaid intern shadow people, um, you know, do minor activities, that's fine. But it has to be primarily for their education. Now, you can have a minimum waged intern, you know, a position that you call intern, someone who's not going to be getting benefits, not getting health insurance, uh, maybe pay time off, and they're just going to get their minimum wage. And if they work more than 40 hours, you give them the overtime based off the minimum wage. You can do that. Um, but when you have unpaid interns, you really need to do so at great peril. So I actually just, before this, I actually had a conversation with a couple of uh, professors of trying to figure out an internship project. And, mm -hmm. and from a farming perspective, obviously, that's, you know, we've been told do not have volunteers. That's mm -hmm. especially in farming. You know, you're basically, you know, it's migrant labor and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. um, so one of the things is that from the school's perspective, you know, they, they say, well, it can be paid or it can be unpaid. And if it's unpaid, either way, you have to have an educational component, right? So you can't just say you're doing an internship without an educational component, which a lot of businesses don't realize, right? They say, I'll, I'll take the intern, but they don't give them the education, right? They right. don't connect to their classes or so forth and so on. Um, so so I guess let's, let's talk about that again, because if, again, they were like, it can be unpaid. You just may not get the best, you know, students, right? Because they, they want the, the paid stuff. So it, is that really the threshold too? Is it, if it's an educational experience, and they can actually get, they're getting credit for it and so forth, it doesn't actually have to be paid, right? It doesn't have to be paid as long as the primary sort of benefit out of that is the education of the student. Mm -hmm. The guidance actually speaks to having an intern that's actually cumbersome on the employer. Exactly. Because yeah. you have to take time, 
where you're expected to take time to mentor them, to explain things to them. They may be, you know, an additional, um, you know, wheel uh, mm-hmm. for you to deal with. They are not someone to say, go get coffee. I mean, you could sort of, you've heard all these stories about like on the movie sets, yeah. you know, the unpaid intern just becomes a gopher. Uh, that would violate federal labor law. But they wouldn't pay somebody law. to do that. <laughs> You know, the irony is, I think, of the movie studios, you know, of an enterprise that's capable of paying someone to do it. uh, They're probably in the best position, Mm -hmm. but they don't. So let's go back to um, the troublesome employees. So so we've talked about, uh, you know, the recourse that employees have, um, how to fight that, the documentation and so on. Let's go through the process of actually terminating an employee. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, one of our one of our guests here tonight, one of these companies, decides that um, it's just no longer working. We, you know, they have an at-will employee that that needs to go. Maybe they've already warned the employee. What do they do then? Do they do they need to call you? Do they need to put put any protections in place before they actually? So, you know, I frequently tell clients, you know, part of my job is uh, counseling people on how to uh, you know manage their way <coughs> through all the employment statutes and also for defending employers when they are faced with a claim. I personally think if you had a limited uh, budget for legal resources, you're better off spending it on the front end. A half hour consultation with an employment lawyer before you pull the trigger is probably gonna be a lot less than after you pull the trigger because that conversation normally goes down with, why are you doing this? And I like the phrase you just mentioned, Dave. Oh. He's not a not a good fit or not uh, you know not doing well, and I usually press people. Tell me a little bit more about that um, because those are sometimes code words for like oh they're just not getting along with the group. Well, if you dig a little deeper, maybe they're not getting along with the group because the group you know engages in certain behaviors mm-hmm. that you know may not pass muster of being non-discriminatory. So, um, so you really want to have that reason. Even though you legally can fire at any point in time, I always encourage employers to be able to say clearly, Harrington was late in the last month, and I've warned him about it, and he's failed to change his behavior. Or his work product is pretty shoddy, and I've got three examples that if someone saw, you know, he didn't even run it through spell check. You know, whatever it is, be able to articulate what those concerns are. Once you've made the decision to terminate, Then what you want to do is, uh, under Connecticut law, if the employment relationship is ending involuntarily, you have to be prepared to pay out any uh, due wages within 24 business hours. If the person quits, they just need to be paid on the next business cycle. So if you are a weekly, bi-weekly employer, you can just take that care of that in the next payroll cycle. But if you're firing someone, you need to deliver those wages uh, pretty promptly. I recommend usually having that check right then and there. I think if it's a little bit of a gray area where you're not 100% sure how solid a case you have, sometimes it's it's worth considering whether you're gonna pay some severance, what I call severance, uh, to an employee in exchange for release. So if you can get that employee to sign a separation agreement that says in exchange for them releasing any claims they might have against the company, they'll receive whatever, it doesn't, there's no magic number. It can be, uh, as long as it's something more than they're entitled to, um, you then can have closure and not have to worry about, oh, when, when's the shoe gonna drop? Because an employee has 180 days or 300 days under state or federal law respectively to bring a claim. 
So those are the things you want to think about. You want to think about whether you're going to share a reason or not, you know, uh, depending on the situation, you know, you may or may not wish to have that conversation. If it's a, you know, if you feel like that conversation has been had a lot and the employee is only going to be argumentative, you might not. If it was something that the employee may not be aware of, there's been a change in business, there has to be a reduction in, in the size of the workforce, you may want to share that with the employee just so they're not wondering, well, why me? You know, why, why is this happening? So you want to give some thought to that. Um, in terms of the times of day, you know, there's mixed opinion about that, whether you do it at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, or the middle of the day. I think what you want to do uh, whatever you do it is try and do it in as respectfully a way as possible. There's a claim in Connecticut called negligent infliction of emotional distress, and it only concerns the behavior of the employer in carrying out a termination decision. Hmm. So employers who make a public spectacle of someone being fired, um, sometimes escorting someone out in a grandiose way, um, doing it in a, an abusive or obnoxious manner. Um, those all can lay the foundation for negligent infliction of emotional distress claim. And they're really unnecessary. Um, I think if you do it in as respectful a way as possible, that's alre already a good step to maybe minimizing the threat of litigation. So don't model yourself on The Apprentice. No, yeah. no definitely <laughs> not. So, so it really comes down to like the individual employee because right, at the end of the day, if an employer can sit down with somebody and say, listen, you're not a good fit. We understand. I mean, let, let's talk about it you know, face to face and handshake deal. I mean, I've been at you know, a company where I worked there for three years. They weren't going as fast as I needed to. I sat them down and said, listen, I don't, you know, I don't think it's the right fit. Let's work it out man to man. Like I know I'm on some projects where I have to be on for another couple of months and everything like that. So is, I mean, does that risk, is that risky in the sense of being just open and honest with somebody? And then you're just like, Oh geez, now, you know, now I'm going to go make the severance package. Now I'm going to try to get them to sign something. And I mean, is it, is it really just as the business owner, which it comes down to when you're hiring somebody, you have to have the gut feeling, right? Mm -hmm. When you're, when you're doing um, business in general, it's a gut feeling. So, is it really just that at the end of the day where it's from a business owner's perspective, it's just how you feel about that individual person or? Well, certainly what you described is a pretty mature, uh, yeah. honest conversation. <laughs> and that can uh, happen. You don't know, Eric. Yeah, you don't. No, no, no. I'm sure it's actually very immature. I was like going to say, I'm sure the conversation was honest. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but you have to balance out once that employee knows that uh, they're going to be not around for much longer, mm -hmm. they may leave tomorrow. Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of a calculus that you got to think about. Okay, um, if they leave tomorrow, is that fine? Maybe, you know, every situation is very different. And so I don't want to say there's bright lines. Sometimes you want to, you know, the employee isn't great. So they're not going to have a long term with you. But uh, you want to be as kind to them, if you will. And it's okay if they stay a month or two. But it's also okay if they leave tomorrow. So you could have that kind of conversation mm -hmm. with you know, I think you should begin to look. You're welcome to stay on for a little bit. We'll help you get there. We'll give you a good recommend or right. a recommendation. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you can do that, mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, and part of that is going to depend on how you feel about the employee being trustworthy, not engaging in sabotage, not being spiteful about the decision. If you can do it, it works out great because if the employee can transition to another job, then you haven't exposed the company to an experience rating for unemployment. Um, the person leaves happier. 
most litigation is brought by unemployed people, not by employed people. Um, but I do think there's a lot of circumstances that would probably uh, caution against that kind of uh, arrangement. So, Mike, we're going to wrap up this segment and, and move on to the Q&A. Is there any last comments that you want to put in before we have I the audience ask questions? The only thing I would say with uh, difficult or uh, problem employees is trying to be as clear as possible. And, and I do <coughs> think, you know, you begin usually with a conversation, but it is good to memorialize that. What I frequently encourage folks to do is have that conversation and then write a follow-up note and be an email if you want to keep it informal or, or something more formal where you say, just following up on our conversation of today, going forward, this is what's going to be expected. If you send a couple of those, people may see writing on the wall and, and leave mm -hmm. on their own, realizing yeah. they're not a good fit. Or if you do have to pull the trigger, you've laid a pretty solid foundation. And the only other thing that I'll add, uh, and Mike's the expert, so you can uh, uh, you know, jump in if I say something wrong, but what we've been talking today are pretty much about individual employees. Um, if you're doing a large reduction in force um, and, you're, and you're terminating a number of employees at once, there are other laws that apply. Yeah. Uh, there are more requirements, and you should talk to someone, someone like Mike with that experience. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things we talked about briefly was about getting a release. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a federal statute, the Older Worker Protection Act, that says if you do a mass layoff, which is basically two or more people being laid off at the same time for the same reason, um, you need to give certain information, basically information that would identify who's being laid off in the affected departments and who's not and their respective <coughs> ages. Um, so you have to give that so the ageism kind of doesn't play into effect kind of a thing where right. it's like, oh, all the older people and now the younger people are. So staying. if you want people to waive an age claim, you have to give this information so they can make an informed decision. And if you fail to do so, they won't waive uh, their age discrimination claim. So you could pay them and they could still sue you for age discrimination if you don't follow the statute. Mm -hmm. So you do need to be cautious about that. Great. And <coughs> before we move on to the q and I just want to uh, make an extra thank you to the CEDF for hosting us today. Um, they've been absolutely fantastic and, and really good with their clients. And if you are out there and you're seeking funding, um, debt funding, and, and maybe you're not quite bankable yet, but you're putting a company together and you've got a good plan, you should talk to these people. Um, they do good, good, meaningful work here in Connecticut. And, uh, and they obviously care enough about their employees, or sorry, about their, about their businesses to you know, put on events like this and other in informational events. Though I guess you could say that maybe they don't care about their businesses at all because they invited us to do this individual <laughs> event, but we'll, 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 we'll pretend it's the good thing. Um, okay, so what we're gonna do is, Eric, hey, you come over here, we'll share a mic, and, uh, oh, sorry, Chris is offering his mic. So if anybody has any questions, all you can do is step up to the mic and you can talk directly to Mike. <laughs> Don't all rush to the front at once. Just hold yourselves back a little bit. Show restraint. Yeah. Caleb, thank you very much. <coughs> all right. Um, thank you for the fantastic uh, um, talk so far. I've learned a lot. Um, is that why um, when you talk about the process of letting go of someone, is that why, um, um, you know, I have a friend who owns a business. Um, they do similar to what I do, home care. And um, I've heard them um, state, we don't fire people. We just don't put them to work. Hmm. 
So yeah, so the law has a nice fancy term for that. It's called constructive discharge. You didn't really fire them, but in a sense you did. So you iced them, right? Exactly. (laughs) Just put them on ice. Um, So it really doesn't protect you. I mean, maybe it slowly encourages the person to go away. Um, But, you know, if they were on a regular schedule and, uh, you know, suddenly you stop calling them, you know, they could still bring the same claims. Um, You know, um, a lot of nursing home clients who I work with have a classification of employees called per diems. And those people have no expectation of when they might be called. And so in those particular cases, I've heard that, you know, the people who are willing to work at different hours, the ones that come in with a positive attitude tend to get called more. Um, But in home healthcare, I've also heard this said that, well, we just won't call them, but that's usually after some history of that person having a certain work schedule. And uh, suddenly when either the person they were caring for passes or no longer needs care, then they don't receive another assignment. So uh, I couldn't tell you that that is a better approach. Um, it's, it's an in- indirect way of dealing with the problem. Again, if someone's not meeting the expectations, if you've laid that foundation and then maybe you stop calling them if they were ever to challenge you, which they certainly could, you again are in the same position you'd be in. You'd be in a good position to say, this is why we didn't give you another assignment. So just to be clear, constructive discharge doesn't alleviate the employer of any of the issues of firing somebody. That's They can still be sued and so on. That's absolutely right, absolutely right. You know, it works another way, too. That's a very uh, passive constructive discharge, not calling someone. Uh, A more classic situation is making a work situation intolerable so that the person ends up quitting, like either giving them a lot of work, giving them the least desirable assignments, and, again, that brings us back to constructive discharge when they ultimately quit. Would that, like, change if you change somebody from the day shift to night shift? Yes. So if you didn't have an actual reason to change that person or a, a, a better reason than just, you know, we had an open spot and I think you fit better at night, not in during right. the day. Right. You, you know, and certainly I've seen the situation where at, at nursing homes where um, someone who's worked third shift or second shift who's had some issues is brought to first shift where there's more supervision. Oh, because on, on third and second, third and uh, second shift, there tends to be less uh, supervisors uh, around. So sometimes you do that, but you do it for a thoughtful reason. But if you know, let's say, for example, you know an employee has childcare responsibilities and they're really mm-hmm. working third shift so that they can be home, and then you switch it knowing that'll force them to quit, you basically so So saying, discharge. again, moving them so we can't have more supervision on them is legitimate reason, that would be right? Fine. Okay. And that, yep. that's actually documentation, and right. we're, we're trying to take the steps right. and so forth. Okay, right. cool. Jim, did you have a question? <coughs> the head of the CEDF, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thank you so much. And to echo uh, Caleb's sentiments, thank you guys so far. Great information. We appreciate this. And hopefully our businesses and whoever listens to the podcast gets a lot out of it. Um, Mike, if you could maybe just give some more details on how best to conduct that exit meeting with the employee. Uh, for what I've been told in the past, you know, it should obviously be very respectful um, but it should be basically as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want to get into a situation, at least this is what I've been told in the past, you do not want to get into a situation as an employer 
where the employee is crying and angry and screaming and, and not leaving the premises for you know an mm -hmm. hour, two hours, half a day. Um, but what specifically too is, and a lot of our customers here at CDF, um, it's usually just one person that runs that company. But I've also been instructed in my past is when you're having that exit or that separation meeting with the employee, you as the employer or the owner of the business should obviously be there and, and give the message. But there should also be another set of eyes and ears mm -hmm. with you. So, and the future is not a he said she said situation. So, again, maybe just some more detail on, sure. you know, how that meeting should come about, how quickly it should be handled, and what kind of office setting, um, and just how that should be really documented. Yep, absolutely. Um, so you you've touched on a few good points. When you make the decision, you've made the decision. So you shouldn't go into this meeting with the idea or giving the impression that the decision is up for revisitation. You've made the decision, you need to now communicate it in a very clear, uh, as kind as possible way, uh, respectful way. Uh, having a second person there is a very good practice um, because you do wanna have that witness uh, that if there is a sort of a different memory, and it's not uncommon, <laughs> right? And even, Putting aside the nefarious personality who is going to lie about what happened in the meeting, you have to imagine that many people walk into a meeting, they may or may not expect uh, to receive the message, and right away their perception is off, off kilter. So they may only be hearing half of what you say uh, in a very uh, unintentional way, um, but that may be what they testify to later. Um, in today's day and age, you want to think through, does this person pose any security threats? One good practice now is if someone does have access to confidential information via the computer, that you do time it well, where you cut off their access, uh, change their, their, eliminate their access before they go into that meeting. Uh, had one crazy situation in 22 years, uh, never heard this before, employee actually went back and it, you know, the sad thing it was, it was, uh, I can't remember, I think it was the HR director <laughs> who got fired and uh, then went back and proceeded to start shredding documents. Oh, um, oh. Yeah, and locked her, <laughs> locked her door, you, screw you. locked the door, <laughs> you know, and so, um, you know, you do your best to anticipate, uh, you know, what personalities are gonna receive the message, uh, at least in an acceptable way and which might not. If you think there's any cause for violence, you should think about putting a call into your local police department and whether you have a security force on site just to be aware. Again, you don't want to be overly intimidating about it, but you wanna think through these issues. And you know, it's sad, but it's true. There's certainly been uh, workplaces that have experienced uh, workplace violence following the delivery of that message. Um, you know, and it, again, some people through the course of their employment may have developed a reputation for having problems managing anger or uh, out, you know, outbursts, and those are the people you may want to give some thought for. I mean, some problems you may never anticipate, um, but others you may uh, do that. Um, you may have your documentation nice and orderly if you're planning to give them their COBRA if they've received health insurance through your. Uh, your employment, you might wanna have COBRA paperwork ready to go, or at least be prepared to say, I will be mailing that. What you wanna do is really have that 
uh, itinerary in your head. If you feel there's personal property or company property that you need to reclaim, laptops, uh, other information, you want to give some thought to how to get that back. Uh, there's been some employers I know who have gotten themselves into a situation where they terminate someone, someone's property is off-site, and they have difficulty re recovering that property. Yes, I have a lot of software clients. That happens quite a bit, engineers around with computers. Um, <coughs> that actually happened once. We had an engineer who, uh, who software engineer, who when he found out that his company was being purchased, it wasn't clear whether or not people were going to be fired, but he just assumed so, so he grabbed his computer and ran for the door <laughs> <coughs> during the announcement. And uh, they called me and asked me what they should do. And not being an appointment lawyer, I said, well, did you try to trip them? <laughs> <laughs> so so do, do employers have recourse if that person starts shredding the documents and, and everything? I mean, could, I mean, they, have the, they still have the car, they still have that kind of stuff. I mean, is there, right. again, <coughs> steps to... Well, if they keep the property... That's called conversion. They, yeah. they are improperly uh, maintaining possession over property that they don't have entitlement to. Um, destruction of property could be its own claim. But, you know, sometimes, you know, knowing you have legal recourse really doesn't solve the problem because the document's been destroyed and you're never going to get a full recovery. Mm -hmm. So, again, I, I think you just want to think these things through. Um, you know, and it's a balance trying to be respectful of someone but yet maintaining that level of security. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, common practice is walking people back to their office. If someone doesn't have much personal property, you may uh, think of just telling them to, uh, that the property will be sent to them, you know, if they have very minimal personal property back at their workplace. Um, and sometimes you might just say, uh, you know, you're free to leave and we'll make an arrangement after hours for you to come back and collect your personal property. Mm -hmm. Again, there's a lot of uh, ways you could do it, um, but just doing it thoughtfully is the most important thing. I think we have another question here. Um, just before you answer, we can answer. Hopefully, this is a yes or no. Should you record those meetings? No, no, no. I've never seen that as a good practice. <coughs> I mean, Connecticut law does allow recording as long as yeah. one participant knows about it. Uh, but I think the more acceptable uh, practice is to have a, an additional person there. Correct. Prepare. Excellent. Sorry. Hi, Mike. Uh, my Hi name there. is uh, Nico. We own Raven's Pie Factory in East Hartford. Uh, our main challenge is that we have a lot of seasonal business, so we need a lot of low-skill labor that works for usually about um, two to three months. So we hire for Thanksgiving in uh, September, October. They work through November, and then we lay off. Mm -hmm. um, so I do have a couple questions um, you know, around that. My first question, though, is um, do you have any tips, sort of, because I have to do sort of a quick and dirty interview and application process and go like do we hire or not hire and see how they're going to work out do you have any tips so that on the front end we can get the best people in um with that sort of quick and uh you know um, i don't know sort of informal process yeah no i think um one i i think you're probably in the best position to know uh through your experience what are sort of the red flags so who what are the employees that didn't work out and can you identify why they didn't work out so that maybe you can look for that flag on the interview process, um, you know. Uh, but I think you know, given your rapid pace um, that you need to hire, you're you're not going to be doing background checks. You're not going to be expending those kind of resources or time to do that. So you want to uh, ask pertinent questions in the application process that you think can get most of the information you need. 
Now, I would say, uh, as of January 1, Connecticut just became a ban-the-box state, meaning you cannot ask on an application whether someone has uh, any uh, felonies or criminal convictions uh, unless you are in very limited circumstances, like if the position requires a bond uh, or um, there's a, if it's required by law, for example, certain positions in nursing homes, administrators, caregivers, they do have to ask those questions on application. I do not believe, you know, in the business you're in that you can ask that question. So then you have to, you know, uh, maybe get at that information in a little more indirect way, you know, by asking for employment history, looking, you know, whether you factor in whether there's been gaps. But I would think, again, if you're looking for someone who is available for a very limited period of time. So I think you almost have to expect you're gonna hit a few bumps along the road just given the nature of uh, the workforce you're, you're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, uh, to ask more specifically about that, do you think that's something I should look for? Because my, my feeling has been sort of that, I don't care about any of that. I just care if they come in, they do a good job, and they, you know, not necessarily even wanna be there, just that they are professional enough that they're there to work and mm -hmm. do what the job they're hiring for, so. Yeah, I mean, you might, if that's what you're really looking for is a, an acceptable work ethic, um, and someone who's willing to follow the direction that you're going to give them. Maybe you try and design an interview, a couple interview questions, give them a some, some sense of the job, ask them what kind of jobs they've liked in the past, you know, to get some sense of the kind of person they will be working for you. Um, so my other question comes sort of on the other end when we have to lay everybody off. Mm -hmm. um, first of all, what sort of notice do we have to give up front? And then at the end, I, I did not know what you said. What you said before about posting everybody's like age and name. Is that something we have to do as well? So that's only if you're going to ask them for a release, which would include an age discrimination claim. Um, you know, it, your business is probably like school bus drivers, right? They know that at the end of the school year, they're going to be laid off. And so, you know, probably in the front end of the interview, you might want to be honest with people and say, this is primarily going to be November through January. Um, sometimes, you know, there's a little extension of that, but more often than not, uh, there won't be. Is that something that works for you? Um, UPS and FedEx do this all the time, right? Uh, come, uh, I think they begin to gear up their workforce in October to deal with the Christmas rush, and everybody understands that on December 24th, their work is uh, going to end, but that <coughs> exercise may put them in a good place for other jobs that might open up. And so I think being honest uh, in the interview will hopefully address that. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Oh, did we have one? And so before she actually does that, I wanna, so teaching and everything like that would fall underneath. You can ask for the, the criminal background uh, and like the, the, you said, nursing homes. So. so you can always do a criminal background check. What the now the law now deals with, and it's part of Governor Malloy's um, second chance society idea, is whether you can ask that information on the application itself. Okay. You're always you're still free to talk to people during their interview about any criminal history they may have. But the idea is, if you see an application where there's criminal history instantly Maybe reflected right you, you right might away. never okay. consider that person but if you meet them and then there's a conversation maybe it was a long time ago or maybe it was a certain context that that crime occurred 
um, you'd be more willing to look beyond that. Okay. Hi, Mike. Hello. I'm in the restaurant business. I have a couple questions. Um, the first was about probationary periods. Yeah. Does that help at all? You know, it's interesting. Um, I, um, I, I'm not a believer in probationary periods if you are an at-will employer, right? So probationary periods are very important in a union context because the traditional probationary period says that during that period of time, the employer can let the person go for any reason whatsoever. And after that period expires, they then can only let someone go if they have just cause. So there's a very important distinction being made. But um, the only other legitimate thing that comes up for probationary periods, and I don't like this term, but I think you can work on it, is whether people can uh, acquire benefits uh, or use benefits during that period of time. I think it, it's a much clearer way of uh, addressing the issue to say to the employee, during your first 90 days of employment, you won't be allowed to take vacation. And during your first night, you know, you don't become eligible for uh, health insurance until 60, on your 60th day or whatever, you know, it is. Rather than speaking to that probationary period, because what it does, I think, is convey a false sense of security. That if I make it through the first 90 days, come 92, you won't uh, be discharging me. But, and that's not what you want to be communicating. You're at will from the day you begin to the day you end. Thank you. Uh, earlier, we talked about company culture. Um, I find a termination easier to do when it follows actions that clearly go against our positive company culture. Would comments, for example, sexually harassing comments, require any advanced warnings before uh, termination? So, uh, if I understand your question is, if you've done that uh, foundational work in terms of counseling someone, no. no. Just uh, gross, single uh, single occurrence, spontaneously. Yeah, there there are definitely certain behaviors that the minute they occur, they constitute a terminable offense. Someone assaults another coworker. Uh, someone you know does something severely harassing of an employee. It's intolerable. You're going to take action swiftly. The employee should have known better. Um, I think even unemployment, depending on the facts, would agree that that probably is a willful misconduct that would render someone ineligible for benefits. So yeah, there's certainly those behaviors that instantly don't require, you know, progressive discipline, uh, if you will, um, and even smaller behaviors. I mean, if you're an at-will employer, the minute you're late, you could say, you come to work late, once you're gone. I mean, you can do that. Um, you know, the person will probably be eligible for unemployment. You know, that won't satisfy that. But there's no obligation if you're an at-will employer to employ a person, um, you know, if you've communicated a standard and they haven't met that standard. But there are certainly behaviors that, you know, are, are going to be over the top, if you will. And you, you would almost be negligent if you didn't take some disciplinary action. Now, now, to almost kind of uh, um, go on that question, too, is that imagine, so Katie, as the owner, sees that happen, right? She sees that, that uh, misconduct happen and everything, so she can point out it right away. But what about if another employee had that, and then it's a he says, she says kind of a thing, right? Like, it's, does that, you know? So you have to investigate, and you have to figure out which side do you believe. 
um, you know, that's really comes down to, I feel some employers feel like they can't take action uh, if it's a he said, she said. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I, I usually ask the uh, person, you know, who do you believe? And what's they'll say quickly. Yeah, yeah. What's your gut feel? And yeah, and that, why? Yeah. But then you ask why. And, and you know, usually there's some uh, evidence, even if it's minor evidence, that will tilt it one way or another. I'll give you an example. Had a situation where a report came in that over the weekend on third shift at a, it happened to be a nursing home, uh, that a gentleman was harassing a female employee. And they were assigned to different wings of the nursing home. They really had no reason to interact. And, it, you know, the occurrence of harassment was completely a she said, he said. You know, it occurred in private rooms, no witnesses around, she said as much. Um, but when we interviewed him, he said, oh, I didn't interact with her at all during the weekend. Uh, I stayed in my wing. We had one witness who didn't see him harass her, but did see him in the wing that she was working. And so that was what we felt, you know, um, the evidence that made her more credible than him. So we're going to take one last question. Uh, well, we'll take two last it's questions. It's a two-part question. <laughs> two-part question. <laughs> okay. So how do you handle... If you could move a little closer to the microphone. How do you handle it if... So my guys come in, I see them for five minutes, they punch out, they're on the road all day. So one employee says, listen, he's, he's hot all day. Mm -hmm. So is it... Can I do random drug testing? Like no. Say I'm glad you asked that question. So uh, the, uh, unless you fall into the limited circumstance, so Connecticut, the, the question is whether you can drug test. In Connecticut, we have a very specific statute. Not every state has a specific, a specific statute like we do, but there's only three times you can drug test in Connecticut. Pre-hire, mm -hmm. and one thing to remember about pre-hire is if you had someone who was working for you, let's say on a per diem basis or a very informal basis, then they decide to join you more formally, cannot pre-hire test if they've been with you for 12 months. Um, so pre-hire drug test. So is 12 months the, the limit? 12 months is okay. the limit, okay. yeah, if they've been with you. And and I personally, th uh, if you had limited resources, I wonder if that's the best way to spend your money anyways. I think a pre-hire drug test is like a, a stupidity test. Like if you can't keep yourself <laughs> clean, knowing you're going to be tested, you know, you have a problem other than drugs or alcohol. Um, so y y you have pre-hire, you have reasonable suspicion. So if someone uh, is acting in a way that you reasonably believe they are presently under the influence of drugs or alcohol that's negatively affecting or could negatively affect their performance, you make drug tests. Um, you know, it's uh, not uncommon that I'll get a call on Monday and uh, an employer or supervisor will tell me, oh, we heard there was a really big party and there was some drugs used. And I'll say, well, how does everyone look? Oh, they all look fine. I'm like, end of conversation. Okay. You can't test. Um, and then the third uh, time you can drug test is um, if you are mandated by um, uh, federal law. So if you're in a DOT situation, yeah. you can have a random program. Or in the state of Connecticut, if you have a safety-sensitive position, that you've been given permission to test. So Connecticut will not give a list of jobs that they automatically consider safety sensitive. They do identify ones that they tend to find safety sensitive, but you still have to apply. So like line workers, people who work with power equipment, if you do uh, want to randomly test, 
you need to um, apply. Now, the situation you just said uh, where someone's uh, hot, you know, or seemingly hot, that's not random. Random isn't like, oh, Mike's acting a little funny, let's test him. Random is truly there's usually a system, usually a third party who will call you up and say, hey, today is Mike's day, have him go down. What you are describing, I think, is more reasonable suspicion. And if you are going to test someone for that, you should make sure you've got two folks who could identify certain behaviors or observations mm -hmm. that would re lead a reasonable person to believe they're under the influence. They're acting fidgety. Their eyes are glossy. Their speech is impaired. They're not able to stand. They're incoherent. Whatever it is, you do it. Sometimes I tell, fo uh, I ask folks, you know, if they're engaging, if the employee is engaging in behavior that's rendering them unfit for work, do I care or do you care whether it's drug-induced versus some other reason? You know, you might ask yourself, like, if someone's visibly unable to do their work, you could discipline and direct. Now, if they come to you and say, I have a disability, then you're going to have to deal with that. But you don't have to assume that. You can just uh, discipline or act on the behaviors you see. So. Okay, so for the DOT, I have DOT numbers on all my trucks. Okay. And they require you to do random testing. Right, so you have a so, program in place. And OSHA, all of my guys have to follow under yep. OSHA regulations. So okay. they're constantly under safety, you know, car yep. tax, safety glasses, everything. Yep. So that's, that was the question, am I allowed to random drug test? So OSHA doesn't, OSHA doesn't have a random drug testing right. mandate. The DOT does. Right. So if they drive my vehicles, then right. I have the right to, if right. I suspect them. But again, you're mixing it. Uh, One that's, is, that's what I mean. so if you're going to have a random drug test uh, pursuant to the DOT regs, set one up. And that the best way to do that is to have a third party. Like Quest. I yeah. Have, I have one in place with Quest. Perfect. So okay. they, you get a call. They say, hey, it's Mike's day. Tell Mike he's got to go down, and you then tell Mike, now you got to go down. That's truly random. Separate and apart from that, if someone calls you up and says, Mike is acting weird today uh, and describes you certain behaviors and they're confirmed by a second person, you, separate and apart from the random drug test, you can send that person for drug testing based <coughs> on a reasonable suspicion that they are presently under the influence. But it's a different focus. It's not random. It's because I think you're actually under the influence. So if they refuse, then I can let them go? Yes, okay. refuse. As long as you have a good foundation for having your reasonable suspicion. And uh, what I recommend is people write notes. Yeah, I, I'm looking at my, exactly, yeah, good. I do document it and the foreman documents it. Terrific. Um, so then the other question is, what if they refuse to sign the warnings? Because I do a verbal. That's okay. You know, people ask me all this stuff. Them. Don't leave them on yeah. the desk. So the question is, you know, when you give that you uh, fire them, you get it, get them out of there, you know, they're, they're yeah. so yeah, you just, um, so the question is when you give that documentation, which it sounds like you do, so that's great. Some employers do ask the employee to sign to indicate they've received it. Right. Um, you don't have to do that. That's uh, not a bad practice. And if the person refuses to do it, um, you just write refuse to sign. And every hearing I've ever been a part of, it's assumed that that is received. Um, you know, it's very classic in a union context. The union steward will tell uh, the members, don't sign anything. So you just, you know, fine. 
refuse to sign and you give the person a copy and then you're you're good to go okay so then on the sexual harassment part yep what if I have all male employees except myself okay okay um, what if it's I let an employee go he was drunk on the job foreman fired I knew the foreman the right to fire done yep a month later he tried to sue me because he said the foreman sexually harassed him how yeah. does that affect me if there's no if he has no documentation or never reported it to me before so this is where if you have a good policy that says if you believe you are a victim of harassment or discrimination and you provide the employee with a uh, mechanism to report their concern if they fail to do so that creates an immunity for you as the employer as long as it's not tied to a tangible employment action and that's the words of the Supreme Court so as long as it can't be traced back to uh, termination a promotion a demotion some affirmative act by the employer if we're just dealing with a hostile workplace claim um, then they're going to be out of luck if they didn't make the report so you want to make sure you have that reporting policy because it does two things one it brings it, it lets employees know that certain behavior is not permissible and if it occurs they should report it and you want to hear about it and if they don't then you gain the immunity from the lawsuit okay. yeah. I have a million more, but that's good. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, any more. It, can, it, can, it can't be a six-part question. It was only a two-part question. Uh, you, you, we'll, we'll listen to another one, but Mike gets to send you a bill at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. no. It would be a big bill. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you, everyone, for coming and for attending. And for those of you listening, thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast, and please tell others about it. <clears throat> you can find us at ctstartup.com. Yeah. Uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Where else, Eric? I think that's it. Ooh, Google Play is not up, but it will be up soon. So Google Play. Okay, uh, soon Soon for yeah, those, those with Android uh, people. That's right. Soon for the Android people will be available on your phone. And uh, please come to the, by the website, uh, give us your email, and uh, we'll keep you updated on new content. We appreciate you listening, and have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the CT Startup Podcast. We want to thank our audio sponsor, the Murphy Kalina Law Firm, our guests for their time and input, our production company, Sublime Exposure Online, and of course you, our listeners, for helping make all this possible. Make sure to check out our Facebook page, our webpage at ctstartup.com, and our Twitter, at ctstartupcast. And please make sure to join our newsletter for all the latest information on connected startups. Oh.